Hi, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. The ancient world is a different place and a different time. It's, it's like entering into a different world. The ancient Christian understanding of virginity is in sharp contrast to the modern take. Virginity in our Catholic tradition is a complete self-giving for the sake of the kingdom. In the Western world, however, practices surrounding virginity have become subject of criticism and ridicule. When's the last time you heard of a male describe himself as a virgin? A modern feminist critique argues that women are ashamed for having sex and men are rewarded for it. Well, whatever the truth there was to that seems to be fading as the culture shames virginity in anybody and seems to encourage sexual excess. Hashtag me too comes from somewhere. But the biblical sense of virginity, especially as used in today's gospel, is about something else entirely. It's not just about abstinence. It's about the future, the eschaton, the resurrection, and the world to come. Modern celibacy and virginity. Scripture and our long Catholic religious tradition describe a purpose in the intentional and voluntary practice of celibacy and virginity directed towards the kingdom of heaven. Technically, celibacy is the decision not to marry. And then if you're not married, uh, well, all unmarried have the same obligation of refraining from sexual activity. Virginity has, uh, at least traditionally, had a biological connotation uh, for people who have not experienced, experienced intercourse. But at the heart of today's gospel is the intentional practice of sexual abstinence for a greater purpose. That's what sacrifice is. You sacrifice something that is good for something that is better. Well, Jesus clearly lived a celibate life, although you might not know that if your sole source of information about our Lord is modern culture. No matter what the movie or the book is, he's always got a girlfriend on the side because, come on, he's a man too. So th that whole reading of the scripture really undercuts the resurrection and the work that Jesus came to do. You know, Matthew's gospel offers Jesus's teaching on voluntary celibacy, and it's in chapter 19, verse 12. And I'll remind you of this, and you've heard this before. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Some because they were made so by others. Some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to accept it. So he says some can't marry because genetically, biologically, they're not suited for it. Some because, well, he may have been referring to eunuchs who were castrated so that they could take care of uh, harems. But it would also simply apply to people who are so abused in life, they're just incapable of intimate uh, connection to another. But it's the third category we're talking about. 
uh, that some renounce marriage, that celibacy, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to accept it. See, for the early church fathers, the voluntary renunciation of marriage was far from bizarre or unnatural, much less unbiblical. It was a sign in this life on earth of the future resurrected life in which there will be no marriage. Death and reproduction, you see, belongs to this world, not the next, according to the Lord. And so, what about virginity in the New Testament? Because it's present there. Uh, Jesus uh, doesn't have intercourse with anybody, according to the scriptures, and is celibate. But remember, we believe the same things about Mary and Joseph. These are startling claims that the New Testament makes. And the assaults on it in the modern world, especially from so-called Bible Christians, really drive a wedge between themselves and the world of uh, Jesus Christ, the ancient world. And so think of the church's teaching on the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is an ancient biblical understanding with clear New Testament roots. You see, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary announcing the Lord's birth, she responded, quote, But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And so when she says, I, don't have, I have no relations with a man, that is the same force and effect as the English words, I do not smoke. Just as someone who says, I do not smoke means, I do not smoke presently. But it also means, I have no intention of smoking in the future. I've given it up. So Mary's words mean, I do not have sexual relations presently, nor do I intend to have sexual relations in the future. In fact, vows of virginity are recognized in the Torah. They had to be agreed to by the husband, um, the idea of abstinence from sex. But it does have these ancient uh, Old Testament roots. Um, why? Well, Jesus says it's about the world to come. But it's not just Mary. How about Joseph? You know, in the ancient world, Joseph may have had other children by a previous marriage. So Joseph would be an older man that married Mary, a younger woman. But when Joseph's relationship with Mary is discussed in the Gospel of Matthew, the scripture states that he did not know Mary until. That's the word that we translate, until. And it's the Greek word, heos. Um, it says he did not have relations with relationships with her until she bore a son so if you're a modern christian you would say well that means that afterwards he and mary just had a normal sexual relationship but that's not what the word means the greek word until eos is used elsewhere in the gospel of matthew and all it does is simply describes a certain period of time and does not imply anything about what happens afterward so consider this example again from Matthew's gospel, in which the same Greek word, heos, meaning until, is used. And it clearly does not imply that something changes afterwards. So here's one of the quotes. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, and that's heos, because it's a Septuagint translation, 
I put your enemies under your feet. That's Matthew 22, quoting from the Old Testament. And so afterwards, is Jesus no longer at the right hand of God after his enemies are all uh, conquered? Uh, That would make no sense. Well, here's another one. Consider at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus came and said to them, Lo, I am with you always until, again, the Greek aeos, the end of the age. So at the end of the age, does he abandon his disciples? That would make no sense of the, of the, of the word. And so clearly the evidence, and it's understood by the early church, is that Mary was virgin before, during, and after. And Joseph respected that, which has Old Testament roots. So the modern difficulties with the early church understanding of virginity for the sake of the kingdom separates the modern reader from the New Testament world. It drives a wedge between the uninitiated understanding of the scriptural world and the text. And so you just take the wrong things out of scripture. And that's part of the problem with some of the Bible-only Christians. They just don't have a a broader perspective uh, to really understand uh, the, the Greek in the New Testament. And so the gospel this Sunday is a case in point. So let's turn there. So Jesus tells the parable about ten virgins, five wise and five foolish in our gospel from Matthew chapter 25. So in Jesus' day, this is what happened with marriage. A bride was first betrothed to her husband, but she continued to live with her family. You know, we used to have a tradition in English culture of promise rings. I'm not sure how widely that's practiced, if at all. I think engagement rings have survived, but not promise rings. But that the idea that you're promised to another person. Um, we used to have in the English-speaking world breach of promise lawsuits. So when you were promised to another person but not legally married, if you ended the engagement, they could sue you. That's what a breach of promise case is. So we're not that far removed from that world. But our modern impoverished understandings, at least in the second world of marriage, where it's about same sexes and all of this. It's just so far away uh, from the biblical understanding. But in the parable for this weekend, the 10 virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to come and claim his bride and lead them to the wedding feast. So imagine they're standing outside the bride's house, and that represents the church, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. So with their torches, they can accompany him to the wedding banquet where uh, the marriage will be celebrated and then consummated. So in the parable, which is allegorical, Jesus is the bridegroom and he fulfills God's ancient promise to join himself forever to his chosen people as a husband joins his bride. This goes all the way back to the prophet Hosea in about the 8th century. So In New Testament terms, we were betrothed in baptism uh, to Jesus. You see that in Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5. And so we are promised to him, uh, but the marriage is not yet complete. And we're called to live lives of holiness and devotion until he comes for us. And that's Revelation 19. In this parable, which this This bridal imagery permeates the Gospels because it's rooted in the Old Testament. 
Jesus reminds us not to hit the snooze button if he's delayed. So we're betrothed. It's not over yet. We really need to focus on this marriage. It's the difference between young people who focus on their wedding and focus on the marriage. The wedding's a day. A marriage is a lifetime relationship. That is a wonderful analogy for understanding your relationship with God. It's not that you were baptized or you accepted Jesus as this one day. It's that you live this relationship with the divine bridegroom. Uh, and so we need to keep our soul's lamps, the light on in us, filled with the oil of perseverance and a desire for God. And when I baptize little kids, I hand the candle to the godparent. And I say, you know, candles are easy to blow out. And if these kids don't get good um, influences in their life, it's easy just to walk away from faith. Getting christening is the first step to salvation. Uh, it's not the end of the road. Um, and so these uh, virtues of perseverance and love of God, desire for God, are what's in the first reading and in the psalm. And if we do this, we'll be wise and the oil for our lamps will not run dry. And that's an analogy drawn from 1 Kings. This is deep in the Old Testament. We will perceive the bridegroom, the wisdom of God, that's in Proverbs, uh, that will come to claim us for the heavenly banquet that the Eucharist prefigures. So our takeaway, my friends, from this short parable is simple. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. But there's a few little things to talk about here. Why are there 10 virgins, five wise and five foolish? God's people can be either wise or foolish, prepared or unprepared, that makes sense. But St. Augustine had a different take on it. He said, there are five virgins who are wise because we have five senses, our sight, our taste, our smell, our hearing, our touch. This is how we learn. The wise, he said, protect their senses from pollution. How many things have you let enter into your life through your eyeballs or your ears that twisted you around? Uh, how has touch and your desire to touch and grab uh, misled you? How have the temptations of appetite led you astray? Those are the things that deaden us and make us foolish because we live our lives around appetites that can never fill us up. So we have to protect our five senses if we want to be a wise virgin. And according to St. Augustine, the wise don't abuse their appetites or irrationally indulge themselves because that behavior darkens our mind. Sin of gluttony, avarice, uh, lust, and sloth, all of these things darken our intellect and we don't perceive reality as it really is because we're always working around the distortions in our life. So if we want to be prepared, we have to protect ourselves. And our first line of defense is protecting what comes into our life through our five senses. So Augustine also wrote that the virgins have lamps by the reason of their good work. So it's not just a good defense about keeping yourself from being corrupted. You have to make choices in this life 
to do good to others, especially to the poor. And this is the bright light that Christians hold up in the world. That's the lamp, St. Augustine says, Jesus is referring to. And, you know, Jesus tells that kind of story over and over. People who hear the word, but they just don't take it seriously, and they never change anything about their lives. See, of these good works, the Lord says, let your works shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, virginity and celibacy are still practiced in the Catholic Church, though inconsistently it seems that it's really under assault. There are lots of people who think that uh, celibacy should be um, at least uh, restricted in regard to clergy. And, and it's probably true if the requirement for celibacy wasn't there and we paid a better wage to priests and we didn't move them around all the time, you, know, you might find that there were more people who were interested in, in, in being a Catholic priest. But what the Pope has pointed out is the real problem is that it's a spiritual problem. And the real problem at the heart of it is what virginity and celibacy are about. Does anybody completely give themselves to God? You know, amongst the clergy, there are wise and foolish virgins. You may have heard by now that the Vatican report about ex-Cardinal McCarrick will be released on Tuesday, 10 a.m. Rome time. Truth-telling is often painful, and this is going to be painful. Fundamentally, ex-Cardinal McCarrick's failures are failures related to his celibate commitments and most probably his abuse of his position in the church. In addition, you're probably going to find that there were corrupting influences on him, and he in turn corrupted others. This is going to be ugly. Amongst our clergy are wise and there are foolish virgins. You know, St. John Paul, who ironically appointed McCarrick Cardinal, oh, he'd like to take that one back, was probably would be more disappointed in all of this than, than most anybody. He wrote about celibacy in his apostolic exhortation. An apostolic exhortation is a form of teaching, which is something less than an encyclical or apostolic constitution but it's an authentic form of teaching. And it was this particular apostolic exhortation was called Pastores Dabo Vobis. I will give you pastors. <clears throat> Here's what he said. The priest is called to be the living image of Jesus Christ, the spouse of the church. Of course, he will always remain a member of the community as a believer alongside his other brothers and sisters. But in virtue of his configuration to Christ, the head and shepherd, the priest stands in the spousal relationship with regard to the community. And in his spiritual life, therefore, he's called to live out Christ's spousal love toward the church, his bride. And so the priest is celibate because he's married to the church. Some of our priests and bishops have been very wise. We have some tremendous examples. One of them would be John Paul but some have been very unwise and foolish virgins. When Jesus tells these stories, he really just understands how human beings operate. That baptism is the beginning of our story, not the end. 
We need to do something with the gift of grace that God has given us. You know, it's not just men that live celibate lives and lives of virginity consecrated to the Lord, but women consecrate themselves to God as virgins and renounce marriage for the religious life. And they're considered spouses of Christ. Often enough, their final vows have something of a wedding ceremony about them. The beautiful words from the Catholic rite of consecration to a life of virginity spoken by a bishop are as follows. And, and this is this rite for women who want to be consecrated virgins. But here's what the rite says. Lord, among your many gifts, you give to some the grace of virginity. Yet the honor of marriage is in no way lessened. As it was in the beginning, your first blessing still remains upon this holy union. Yet your loving wisdom chooses those who make sacrifice of marriage for the sake of the love of which it is the sign. They renounce the joys of human marriage, but cherish all that it foreshadows. And so virginity and celibacy is not contrary to marriage. They all point to the same reality. But this call for celibacy and virginity, which is clearly in the math, the Gospel of Matthew, is really something about men and women, monk or nun, single or married, priest or virgin, husband or wife, that we're all called to live a consecrated sexuality pointed towards the kingdom of heaven. If it just collapses in on itself, and sex so easily can, that can very much distort our lives. Think what it did to Teddy McCarrick's life. Absolutely ruinous. And he's not alone amongst the laity, the priests, and the bishops. And so the devil sifts us out. And he enters, uh, tempts us through our senses, or enters the back of our mind, and tries to convince us that we can't trust God. And we can't just say no. It is a challenge to live chastely, and we ought to cut some slack to each other. But there are boundaries. There are certain things that are simply not acceptable in our Christian community. And what Ted McCarrick has been accused of doing, and the Holy Father convinced that he did, is simply not acceptable. Other priests along the same lines. Some of it is absolute criminal behavior. Some of it is... Uh, on the fine line of, of uh, sexual assault. Um, foolish. Absolutely can go nowhere. But in the New Testament, we remember it was a troubled world too. Uh, sex was out of control in the Roman Empire. Just read the great St. Augustine on it. Wow. Uh, we think our world's rough. But remember Mary was consecrated to virginity gave her life to her son, who she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. St. Joseph, who was just drawn into the whole story, gave himself in consecrated virginity to his wife and to God. Um, and so Jesus, who himself never married, all of it is a prophetic statement. What happens when you kill every sign that points to God in creation. And you make it all simply about getting the next pleasure. It just ends up in utter frustration 
It's a world without grace. What virginity points to is the presence and the possibility of grace in our life when we take our sexuality and everything that we are and we direct it towards the service of God. You know, understanding the New Testament through ancient Jewish eyes, this ancient classical world, reveals the marks of the spousal love of Christ for each and every one of us. If we fail to listen, we end up just collapsing in on ourselves. Instead of rising from the dead, at the end of time, we implode. This is a stark warning. Everything about us points to something more, and that something more is the love of God and the love of neighbor. So this has been Oral Valley Catholic. Until next week. That's why.